got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. Hello, you're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, we'll be talking with Brittany DeBarros, organizing director for About Face, Veterans Against the War. So one of the things within About Face that we're coaching people and each other around is like, we don't use the language of peaceful protester because that language often gets weaponized as a, as a mechanism to delineate the quote good protesters from the quote bad protesters. All that plus an entire necklace full of additional wisdom pearls from Brittany coming at you in just a minute on this episode we're calling Striking Back at Empire Privilege. First, here's some music by Brittany Chantel called J-R-O-T-C. Tell me what's the word. Tell them save that bullshit for the birds. They may not concur. Show me all the things that I prefer. Turn me into her. Turn me into someone you prefer. Tell me what's the word. Major word. Help me stay informed. Here's my uniform. Press impressive. Tell me what's the form. How do I conform? Tell me what's the army brand of norm. Help me brace the storm. Trust you won't leave me misinformed You don't want me torn Military ball in my awards Got me looking toward Rose colored glasses paint the floor Help me pass the torch We're here today with Brittany DeBarros Organizing Director for About Face Veterans Against the War Brittany came to About Face with a diverse mix of business, military, and nonprofit leadership experiences that cemented her deep passion and commitment to intersectional movement building work She deployed to Afghanistan for a year in 2012 and has worked on economic and racial liberation issues in various capacities since she returned. She is particularly passionate about leveraging her experience as a psychological operations officer to center narrative and behavior change in campaign strategy. She is based in New York City. Welcome to What the Folk, Brittany. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad that this worked out. I know we've been trying for a minute, and um, and you've been very busy, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but before we jump right into all of the the current madness, why don't we start with some of the past madness? <laughs> Could you you're so you are the organizing director for About Face Veterans Against the War. Um, so you are yourself a veteran and. For anyone who is not uh, acquainted with you, I would love to hear about your path from civilian to army officer to anti-war activist. Sure, thanks. Um, I mean, that is a really long story. So (laughs) I will try really hard to give you the short version because I think like, you know, one of the things that we believe in and about face, I think by nature of the fact that we're all post-9-11 military veterans who have now come to become anti-war organizers and activists is that we believe in this process of transformation. Um, And we know that for many of us, that that process of transformation happens slowly over the course of many years, right? And that was true for me. Um, And so, you know, I grew up in Texas in a very patriotic family. My mom was an army officer. I was like a, I was very political even at a young age, but 
Um, I, you know, I think you could have fairly described me as a neocon, <laughs> a young neocon <laughs> in Texas. Um, and so, you know, there were several things along the way that um, I was exposed to that really started to open up my worldview and my thinking, including uh, competitive debate, debate. I have to give it a shout out because I was just exposed to so much theory, theoretical literature. Like even back then, um, there were, uh, you know, I graduated from high school in 2007. So, I mean, historic anti-war protests were happening as I was coming up. And I even learned the language of militarism and military industrial complex. But I, I think like, especially a lot of black and brown, uh, you know, somewhat politicized people who joined the military thought, okay, so there are some problems, but if different kinds of leaders join, we can try to reform, right? And we can try to make some of the, that change from within. And that is very much the framework that I joined the military with. But to some degree, I was also a true believer. You know, I, I, I believed that we were helping the Afghan people all the way up until the time that I got to Afghanistan. And so, um, but, you know, it was very clear when I was there that I, I, I was, you know, I'm grateful that I spent a lot of time with Afghan people. Um, and it became impossible not to see that we were doing far more harm than we were helping um, and they were so gracious and so open and so clearly committed to fighting for their own better future um, and also terrified by, you know, all of the violence that we were really expanding, not decreasing in the region. Um, and, and it also became clear that I was in this position where here I was, true, you know, bright-eyed, true believer, young officer who was like, we're here to help. And, and I have this mission written down that says we're supposed to be training the Afghan people for their own stability and blah, 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 so that they can be self-sufficient. And yet I'm fighting with these ground commanders who just want to, they signed up to play Call of Duty, basically, in real life, right? They wanted to, they wanted violence of action. They wanted to see explosions. They wanted to be in the mix and say that they were the real deal. And, you know, literally I had so many arguments in country fighting with commanders saying, who were like, we're going to do a night raid on this village. And I was like, why? That's not our mission. What does that accomplish? How is that helpful? And then being like, well, because they're not cooperating. And I was like, well, right, because they're rightfully scared for their lives to talk to us, you know, and that, and doing a raid of the village is not going to help that, um, and being so frustrated. So for me, I came home really confused. I mean, I think a lot of us also don't, we don't have language for moral injury and you know kind of like what it feels like to be to have this like crushing existential sense of betrayal and a realization that you had done nothing but harm when you thought that you were fighting for justice and for freedom um but i didn't yet know i didn't ha i still didn't have a political framework to understand why the war was the way that it was right and so my first conclusion the first step on that journey was Maybe this is the right mission, but the military is designed for violence. The people who sign up for it want to do violence, even if they think it's violence for good. And so this is not the right vehicle to do this mission, right? Of like basically helping people do community development. In many ways, that's what it is, right? It's like we're trying to build up infrastructure because even in the U.S. military doctrine, they know that insurgency is created by lack of lack of political stability, poverty, right? Like all of these things. And yet, you know, how does the military address those things? And then the next step um, 
for me was the step when I, why I finally started realizing I need to use my voice. Cause I kind of, I still had a contract that I had to be in the reserves to pay off my college, uh, you know, requirement for, for going to college for, uh, you know, on a scholarship. Um, so I was like, okay, I felt trapped and I told, I thought that I didn't have any options. I had never heard of anyone in the anti-war movement. I had definitely not heard of veterans doing anti-war work or any kind of, you know, like pro progressive social work. So I was like, I guess I have no choice. I have to just go through these motions. I will not deploy again, but at least I'm just going to drill, right? I can be in the reserves. I'm not hurting that much. Um, but the next realization for me was actually when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and I wrote this passionate post about why that was fighting for freedom. That was patriotic at the time. Um, and, and there were so many, and I, you know, I was thorough. I used all my debater skills. I was like, here's all my arguments laid out in bullet points. And then so many people were like, wow, I would never thought of so many of these things. And I'm so glad you took the time to write this, but I still can't support him because the veterans. And it was this crystallizing moment for me where I was like, wow, like you are saying this to a veteran though. So I don't, you know, the cognitive dissonance was so clear in that moment. And it also, I felt convicted because I was so quiet about being a veteran, right? And I was like, half of these people probably don't even realize that they're saying this to a vet, you know? And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, I actually have a responsibility because veteran, the veteran label is being leveraged to promote nationalism, but in a way that's meant to obstruct uh, like racial justice work. And that was work I was doing at that time in my life. And I made the connection that actually we can't make racial justice progress if we're not willing to address nationalism and veterans are the most effectively positioned in many in many cases to be able to speak to that because we are so venerated right and and lastly i'll say that was also the last you know that that was also important because it made the connection between the ways that like I said, I had realized, okay, the military isn't the, the vehicle for this, right? Maybe this is the right mission. But then I also realized how much, and you can see that right now, how much there's this tendency within our society to treat the military like it can solve any and all problems, right? Oh, the post office is being defunded? Have the military deliver the mail. Oh, we don't have a public health system? Have the military do something, you know? And it's just, I mean, pick an issue, and there's just this, like, reactive tendency to be like, I don't know, probably the military can do something about that, um, when really a lot of that is because we don't confront what the military is actually for, which is violence. So it's been really interesting for me doing this pod and getting to know, you know, some of the people Emily's worked with in the anti-war vet movement, because I am a civilian, but I have... A background with protesting um, as I got really pulled into the anti-war movement during um, basically the beginning of the war on terror. I was in college and got pulled into that work. Um, and I think that there's so much of a disconnect, maybe even between people that work in the anti-war movement and knowing that there's vets for peace and that there are veterans fighting, you know, for um, a more sane approach to our military policy. So what kind of, you know, advice or what do you think civilians like myself should know about anti-war work and what are practical ways that we can support the work of about face? Sure. Um, so, you know, we get this question a lot and I always feel complicated about it because um, I think that there also is a really important critique about veterans, the way that veterans have been centered historically in anti-war movement in ways that have been really powerful and really important, but it can also be uh, problematic sometimes, mm -hmm. right? And so 
Um, I want to start by naming that and that that's something that we're really mindful of and kind of constantly checking in on as we evolve, as we grow as a movement on a macro level. Like what is the appropriate role for veterans to be playing in a way that allows us to leverage our social capital that we have, um, particularly around combating nationalist narratives, but not in a way that reinforces that same, you know, veteran mystique, as they say, or nationalism, right? Because there's a very easy way where it becomes we're doing the leftist version of, oh, the poor vets, listen to us, like, and centering it on us. Mm -hmm. and, And that reinforces this same idea that allows us to erase the truth that we are harmers, right? And that's a really important thing to us and about face culturally is acknowledging and holding the complexity of the fact that we were harmed by this system. We were used and lied to and betrayed by this system, but we were also harmers. And it's really important when we think about what is the society we're trying to envision and we think about restorative justice and the history of this nation, right? That we have this culture of denying harm of just being like at best we're like oh yeah that happened that wasn't great but then with no real commitment to making it right and in in any kind of tangible way and so in a small way I think that that's one thing that we can all be thinking about when we think about anti-war work is like what are the ways that we are harmed by this domestically in our communities right we need to talk about those connections the ways that the war abroad connects to the wars at home, right? The fact that our anti-war work has to start with the fact that our military was built up in response to indigenous resistance, right? And that there's this tendency to be like, and then in 2001, the endless wars started, right? <laughs> and it's like, is that when they started though, right? And um, yeah. and in that way, right, we have this, you know, what we sometimes have started to refer to as empire privilege. Like the first step mm-hmm. is getting people to confront the fact that we're an empire. That's hard, right? Like that's a whole frontier of struggle of its own. Frontier is a really poor choice of words for that. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Case in point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we're all conditioned. Yeah, the, the language is in all of us. I hear myself doing it all the time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah but totally. It's like, so, right. So it's like, how can we acknowledge that historically, even in the anti-war movement, we've erased that history, that true root of like the idea that that's actually what the military is rooted in. It was created for the purpose of attacking indigenous people, suppressing and, and, you know, committing genocide against indigenous people. And that has been projected internationally. And I think when you hold that frame and that's the way that you understand militarism as a system of oppression, then you approach anti-war work differently, right? Because at that point, you have no choice but to conclude that it's not about ending one war at a time. It's about getting at this rooted, interconnected, interlocking, as as uh, Dr. King used to say, interlocking systems of evil, right? That, um, And so, you know, at that point, you start to interrogate uh, and look at your strategies in different ways. And one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is how can we build the anti-war movement that we need in this moment And as far as I'm concerned, that anti-war movement is not like some new movement. It's deepening that analysis of what is militarism and what is the role that militarism plays in relationship with white supremacy, with patriarchy, and with economic exploitation and, you know, capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, not, not trying to just like, and I still think when I look around, this is not to throw shade on anybody's work, but it's like, 
there's such a tendency and a habit of, of being on street corners and being like, and this horrible thing our military is doing and this horrible thing. And that's valuable. And if that's, if that's where we stop, then we're just talking about the expressions. We're not actually giving people, um, the, the tools to see, uh, the mechanics of the system so that we can come up with strategies for dismantling those mechanics. Um, and that's what I think about a lot. And I don't think that that's limited to vets, right? I think that um, we're thinking a lot about how are we working with diaspora communities that have been displaced and impacted? How do we work beyond these borders, right? How do we think about um, how do we think about those the connections between the way that our military, the police, the U.S. police state here and abroad, right, is the way we've started to think about it. Um, and I think that that's going to take all of us, including civilians. Um, and I think. You know, I don't know. I've, I've said a lot, so I'll pause there. But I think civilians also, you know, vets are are intersectional in our own identities, right? And mm-hmm. so there's there's the there's all our own traumas of just existing in this society, and then there's the trauma of being conditioned by a very traumatic institution, which is the military, and then there's the trauma of doing harm as part of that institution, and then you know, and so it's like I think that one of the biggest struggles with veteran organizing is how do we be well? How do we like, how do we navigate not treating people as disposable, but also not allowing our communities to be like, our organizing communities to be like cesspool of everybody acting out all of their trauma behaviors on each other. Um, And I think historically in About Face, civilian allies have played a really important grounding and wellness uh, role of kind of like, you know, I don't know, connecting outside of that like, particular traumatized group yeah um i definitely would like to get back to the point of wellness i'm sure that you were about to ask that emily i had a feeling but um i really (laughs) liked hearing you say the word umpire privilege because i'm i know i didn't like invent this but i've been trying to get imperial privilege to catch on with you know some of my woke liberal friends and it's like that is not a level people want to engage with they don't want to see that bigger container so i really appreciate that you framed it like that thank you yeah i agree i don't think i've ever heard empire privilege uttered before so whether or not you coined it um i'm definitely going to be borrowing that because it's real it's what we're all living under and Yes, along the lines of wellness, I was going to say first that I definitely agree civilian allies have played a huge role uh, in that piece of the anti-war work I've done, both with About Face and Vets for Peace, and just individually, uh, people who are willing to sit in that space with veterans when they're not veterans are so special and so valuable. I don't know if I would be able to do that if I, you know hadn't been there. So, um, yeah, super important. So speaking of wellness and the ways that all of this work uh, as anti-militarism work is linked to the work of resisting an empire and resisting, um, oppression of specific groups of people such as indigenous people and black people and brown people, um, and anybody who has a voice against the systems of oppression. How do you feel uh, you personally and about face work on incorporating the wellness work into the resistance work? Because in my, in my mind, I see those, those pieces as interlocking as well uh, as 
we were talking about earlier, wellness as an act of resistance against oppression. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think that there has been so much healing work and amazing wellness-oriented work throughout the history of About Face long before I came along. And I think often that has been in a kind of like ebb and flow cycle because I think like many young organizations that are formed in the midst of activism and crisis that in an organic way, it takes some time to figure out like a kind of developed framework for how do we hold all of these things together consistently and in relationship. And I feel like that's the phase of the work that I'm trying to solidify now to build on that past practice. It's like all the elements have been there at different times. So now how do we make sure that it's like deeply embedded? Because also um, that ebb and flow has demonstrated that we're in this cycle of trauma and burnout in our organization, right? It's almost like, I mean, you know, Emily, you've been around even longer than I have and know that it's almost as if every three to five years, we're almost strategically starting from scratch because the leaders who had been building around a particular strategy are so beat up by by navigating all of that trauma and conflict and pain and everything that it's like they burn out. We kind of like a new crop comes up. It's almost like we're starting from scratch and that's just not good. That's not a sustainable way to build for uh, build movement when we know that the systems that we're up against are, you know, struggles for the long haul. And so, you know, we, I've been studying um, a lot of Latin American movement, uh, you know, organizations, culture. I've been studying, um, you know, organizations like SNCC, the Panthers, um, throughout uh, U.S. history, uh, the American Indian movement, a bunch of different things to, to understand how did they build that healing and wellness and, and sustainability culture into their long-term uh, strategy and what we've come to is I started to think about our work as three pillars. And, you know, nothing is ever like cut and dry into like three neat little buckets. But I think about three vital pieces of our work being one, power building activities. These are external things that move us toward our long term goals of addressing uh, and dismantling the military industrial complex and militarism socially alongside the other systems of oppression, right? Then the second thing is harm reduction, right? There are things that we know we need to make interventions around in the short run that might not be strategies that build towards our long-term goals, but they have um, mutual benefits that spill over and they allow us to decrease harm in the short run. One example of that is counter-recruitment, right? We're never going to out-recruit the military 100% to the point that that's our strategy to win, but we can prevent a lot of harm by speaking with youth by, in ways that also equip them to be future leaders, right, in the movement with the tools that allow them to carry that analysis and that knowledge forward so that it also compounds and magnifies that power building work in an indirect way. And then the third bucket is sustainment. Is This is like my least favorite name of the categories, but um, I've been thinking of it as community sustainment and that is everything from how do we develop clear and competent leaders with a detailed understanding of the history of the lessons learned in the community, the vision for the future and the political analysis and the theory of change, the practices that we need to hold consistently, as well as um, having the skills, the personal healing and wellness skills, like an awareness of like, what is a trauma response? How does trauma show up? 
How can we be self-aware? What are new ways of navigating harm to get harm and conflict together, right? That aren't so destructive to the community. How can we build structure and practice and culture around restorative justice process and things like that? Um, and and also how do we have art and other, um, other kinds of like soulful and cultural things that are necessary for the heart and soul of a community that is not right because like it's white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism that tells us we have to just do the tasks and that's it and we don't get to be like full so soulful human beings um who sometimes slow down who sometimes just have fun um who take take the time to be in pleasure and be in joy and so i think i see all of those as vital elements and I think that they're they're important in any community, especially impacted community that's doing work around the systems that they've been impacted by. But I think for all the reasons I already said, it's extra, 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 like non-negotiable for vets because our history organizationally has proven that when we don't have those as like a, every organizing meeting, we do embodiment exercises kind of thing, you know, like we are, you know, we act a fool. Like we just do all of us, you know, because we all have our baggage and uh, we don't mean to. And also this work is hard and, you know, um, we're run down and uh, stretched thin and that just, you know, creates a lot of destructiveness and the conditions for us to be pit against each other. So those are some of the things we're thinking about. Oh, actually, I wanted to say one more thing. Yeah. Is there time? Yeah, totally. We have all the time. Because okay. <laughs> I was kind of thinking about, yeah, like our very organizational thing, but I speak a lot with my, especially other Black femme organizers. We're often having conversations about the relationship between ableism and these other systems of oppression. I think that the, I'm, I am a student right now of disability justice uh, movement. I'm like intentionally trying to learn and study and work on my own internalized ableism. That internalized ableism is a thing in our society and it's exacerbated in the military, right? For reasons that anyone who's even seen a movie about the military can probably deduce. Yeah. Um, but I think also my current understanding and analysis is I think about I think about patriarchy and white supremacy as systems of social control that are meant to maintain economic exploitation, right? That is the purpose of those systems. And I understand ableism as like almost like the connective tissue between all of those systems mm -hmm. that like a lot, that is like the, um, almost like a vehicle for us internalizing those oppressions, right? It becomes almost like the spoon with which we feed ourselves into the internalization of patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy. Um, and I don't think we talk, I think we're on the vanguard a little bit, um, of movement at a macro level mm. of disability justice coming to the forefront and becoming a popularized um, integrated part of other fronts of struggle. And I think that that's vital um, for the wellness piece. And I think that that um, when we, you know, when we're not addressing internalized ableism, it becomes dangerous, right? And, and we burn out and it ultimately is not strategic. Uh, for all the reasons that, you know, I just mentioned on the micro level with about faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. And I feel like that gets left off, you know, the table so often when we talk about, you know, inclusivity of movements, like not mm -hmm. to get off topic, but I remember seeing posts when the protests kicked off in June being like, if you can't be out there walking, like, like, you know, like things like that, that, you know, the intent was good, but it was like, think about that not everybody can be there in the same way right. you can physically. Um, right. So yeah. 
kind of dovetailing off that, I know you've also done a lot of work, um, and you kind of touched on this already, but to kind of confronting problems around gender and race in the anti-war movement. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I would say that I uh, was caught off guard when I got involved in anti-war work for the first time and, you know, was just confronted by um, how elderly, how um, how white, and how predominantly cis man <laughs> the leadership and even the body was. Um, and I, it took me some time to adjust and to, like, translate uh, the analysis of, like, how uh, white supremacy and patriarchy show up in practice broadly in society. Um, and then I used to work for this philanthropic organization, and I feel like that was the beginning of a sharpening of an understanding of the way that uh, those things play out within the nonprofit sector. And so, and then I think the third sharpening of that was, you know, it was in that job that I, I walked away with a clarity that this, that women of color, particularly black women um, and gender nonconforming people will often rise like to a position of leadership briefly within movement and within nonprofits and will very quickly be pushed out um, either, you know, and, and that looks a whole bunch of different ways, but there's a very distinct pattern. Like there's even a graphic that lays out this pattern in the way that it happens beautifully. That's, I think it's titled like the problem woman of color in the organization and the way that people of color and especially women of color and black and indigenous people like end up trying to seeing, seeing issues being like, oh, these are people who are with me. We all want the same things, right? We want to tear down these horrible systems of oppression. We're all explicitly on the same page about that. And then trying to do that and expecting support and enthusiasm and in instead becoming targeted, demonized, gaslit, right? Like, and, and made to be the problem. And then often the way that happens is positioned as like, okay, great. Well, if you think this is a, such a problem, here you go you know, you can be the diversity officer or whatever it is, right, in a given institution, or you can be on a, you can be on a racial justice task force I was just about to make a joke about task forces. Right. With, no, with no power, no authority, right? Like, and so you're ultimately, you're set up for failure because now you're just formally put in a position to be held responsible for the failure to address the issues which are really fundamental organizational issues, right? Not some side project that needs to be addressed to like appease the angry brown folks. <laughs> and so I think, um, or the angry women or whatever the issue mm -hmm. is, right? And mm -hmm. I've now seen this exact same cycle play out in multiple institutions. And, and from the time I was at that philanthropic organization to, you know, carrying that into more grassroots movement work, it, I just saw, wow, like every time this happens to a woman of color in leadership, they often for a long time think that they're the only one. And they struggle for years and like internalize a whole bunch of gaslighting thinking maybe I am the problem because it's so effective. And they end up so torn down that then often we do end up acting, you know, wild and out. And because we've been like, abused and traumatized for years and gaslit for years and then we snap you know and then they're like see i told you she was crazy um, you know and so this is like 
you know, our movements can't be hostile to leaders like them because those are the very leaders we need. And we have to be willing to choose that over choosing comfort, over choosing people it's who it's like, they've been around for 20 years. And it's like, great, no one's telling them to leave. But like, this is what we're doing now. This is what the movement needs. And it's not about, it's not about individuals. It's about what, it's about us. It's about we, it's about what, what we're trying to build. I think that speaks to so many important points uh, around what this the the work what I perceive the work of anti-militarism to be and how it's done when you like I feel what I heard you touch on was not only the need to uh, the need to recognize these systemic patterns of injustice but to also recognize that fixing that is actually the work of anti-militarism it's not separate it's it's part of it because what is the opposite of a militarized aggressive response to an issue well it would be a a nonviolent system of accountability and if we as an empire were not so invested in keeping the empire uh then we would center our systems of government around the best ways to to be nonviolently accountable to one another and be sustainable. So thank you for making both of those uh, connections. Um, you know we've been we've been trying to talk about vision a lot, and you've mentioned the, the world that we're trying to envision, the better world we're trying to envision. And I'm curious to know how. In your world, uh, or in your imagination land, in your world of pure imagination, what do you see as an ideal system uh, in which all people who are marginalized uh, play a role? How would you see that looking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I really appreciate this question because I think it's one, it's been one that I you know, if you haven't gathered yet, I can, I can be a little soapboxy. And I've, this has been a late, a, a soapbox of me for late, which is like, we need to talk about what happens when we win. Right. <laughs> and, and weirdly bear with me, like no one abandoned the podcast when you, you hear this come out of my mouth, but what I'm saying, like, I, I weirdly have been thinking about this so much because of Hamilton. And I want to say the, the musical, and I watched it, you know, on Disney Plus, um, and I was so struck and so moved by it. And also, it's obviously uh, problematic in many ways. And the most poignant way is the way that it completely erases Indigenous people, um, both in terms of the like genocide and harm done in the establishment of this nation uh, against Indigenous nations, but also in the role that Indigenous people played in helping us to win that revolution, um, and, which is also why, it, you know, there's multiple reasons why that's, uh, you know, that's not forgivable. And also, can we practice holding all that complexity? Because again, when we're talking about like, how do we hold harm and harmed and, you know, and um, I think that that's part of what it is, is like being able to practice our muscles for not being like, the monsters and the good guys, right? And like challenging ourselves to dig deeper into that. And, and you know, I think that there's really important critiques about the ways that that play has, um, uh, has whitewashed uh, slavers, people who were genocidal um, against Native people. And um, what I found is I've been deep in anti-imperialist work. So I, I, I hadn't realized how much I had flattened 
those characters and that time period. And I watched this play and it was painful that it humanized for that, humanized them for me mm-hmm. because it forced me into this place of like, oh yeah. And they also believed in ideas that are, that were revolutionary in a way. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, this is a roundabout thing, so bear with me, but where, what I'm getting at is my biggest takeaway is, and I, you know, I'm also not erasing the fact that this is not what most people are, are taking away when they watch Hamilton <laughs> and that there's harm in that. But what I took away is I was like, oh, wow. It never occurred to me that we're, I'm struggling, right? As you mentioned, I've been struggling around the, like, dealing with racism and sexism in our practice, in our interpersonal practice is not a thing that we do to get to the real work. It is the real work, right? And just like making that case. And then I was like, oh my God, I've mi- I've been missing the opportunity that the case study, the evidence for my point is America. Because you have this opportunity, right? You have these people who were like, you know, they were like, let's get rid of these overlords. Everybody should be able to have a voice and be represented and freedom and all of these these beautiful ideals, Right. And yet when they won this revolution, instead of building a project that was actually liberatory for everybody, they became the oppressors that they fought against. Right. They chose to take on the role of empire um, and of empire builders. And, um, you know, I've been in this place of imagining, like, what if they hadn't? What if enslaved black people and indigenous people and the settlers had gotten together and been like, how do we heal amongst each other for the harm that we've done each other? Like, and, and how do we build something that is as antithetical to what we just fought against as possible? Um, and so when I think about a vision for the future, the truth is, I don't know specifically what it would be like. And that's a problem. That's why I've been soapboxing on this lately, because I'm like, <laughs> we got to talk about this, like, like in, in practicalities, right? And I think we avoid it because for many reasons, I, I think one of them is because white supremacy culture, but all of like conflict avoidance. Um, and we have this concept, this very like fluffy idea that unity is like avoiding just the divisiveness, I'm putting quotes, right? And avoiding things that might uh, create conflict and rifts in the interest of so-called unity. Um, and yet we know that that doesn't actually serve us, right? That just cues us up to be pitted against each other either sooner or later. Right, because what happens when we win? Everyone's going to be fighting about what the results have looked like if we haven't been doing the work to build alignment around that. So, I think we need to be talking about like, okay, just transition. Right, we know our economy is built on violence right now. So, what does it practically look like to transition in a way that is is just away from that? Right, like when we say land back, like what does that tangibly look like? Do we get together with all of the leadership, like with nominated leadership and? Uh, tribal leadership um, of various indigenous nations and get the settlers together and the black leadership together in various places and say like, all right, like what does being in right relationship look like for real? You know, like, I don't know, but I, those are some of the things that I think about a lot. And I think about the fact that that's why I do think that bringing our macro analysis of these systems of oppression all the way down to behavior level um, is part of equipping ourselves to build something together and to even be able to be in conflict, in, in constructive conflict with each other about what would a system that is not rooted in these oppressions look like, right? Because if we don't understand the ways that they're manifesting thoroughly now, then we're just going to do what those so-called founding fathers did, which is like become the harm that we've been fighting. 
Um, and so the doing the work of understanding these behaviors in detailed ways, I think it sets us up to say, okay, how about this? Nope, that's rooted in this ableist practice. Okay, how about this, right? And like um, be able to struggle with each other around a tangible vision that allows people to have an agency that centers life, you know, and build a society that actually centers life and centers caring for people um, and not exploiting people and exploiting the land. Man, I love that answer so much. There's so much I want to unpack there, but just one thing you said that it's something I think about a lot is how we're kind of being asked to move into a space right now where we have to be able to hold paradox and hold multiple mm -hmm. truths at once while still having this kind of ethical base that we're working towards. You right. know, the founding fathers can be oppressors and creators of amazing ideals. How do we not throw that baby out with the bathwater while still moving forward in a way where we're not keeping repeating the same issues over and over again? So, mm -hmm. yeah, I really like that answer a lot. Thanks. Yeah. I'm glad because I don't have, you know, like an actual plan. <laughs> an actual, like, here's what the government should look like. And right. So I mean, I don't think anyone does, but I think that's okay. I think the fact that, right. you know, you're thinking about that and asking those questions yeah. is really valuable. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like we need to start having those conversations. Yeah. You know, it's like what would governance look like? What would, you know... um, and that actually beautifully circles back to this idea that like military skill equals governance skill and can, can, you know, translate to all these things. Right. Cause it's like, you can win a revolution. That doesn't mean that you know how to lead and govern. Right. That's not the same thing. Um, and you know, so it's like, how are we, how, how are we not replicating that assumption in the way that we think about struggle versus winning and what happens after we win one of the most important things I've learned since I started doing anti-militarist organizing that really moved forward my own personal healing, even in how to relate to like being a fighter, right? Because um, was I work with my, at that time, campaign co-director, Crystal Tubles, um, who is Northern Cheyenne and Oglala Lakota, and was gracious enough to share with me that in many indigenous cultures, historically, um, the concept of feminism doesn't compute because uh, they're organized in a way, uh, in, a, in a form of matriarchy, right? And it's not matriarchy that's like basically the, sh the hierarchical structure of patriarchy, but with women, because I think that's a lot of times what people think matriarchy would be, right? It's like we just switch out the, the <laughs> yeah. oppressor. Um, Girl but, boss, Rhett Raytheon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, but there, was, um, there were warrior societies within their cultures um, and warrior had a different connotation than what we mean when we say warrior in the warrior creed in the U.S. military, right? And it, it was truly about service and defense and the greatest honor was about being able to win without having to do violence. Um, but ultimately, it was uh, elders and women who were the ones in many societies who made the call about whether they were going to war um, or whether the warrior societies were allowed to move in the first place. And that was about um, balance and connect connectedness to the ability to bring life, to making sure that there was balance in how we relate to violence when violence in the worst case does become potentially necessary. Um, that like we don't be, you know, that the people who are governing and making those decisions and rooted in that wisdom are not the people who are doing, who are the warriors. Um, and that separation is theoretically built into the idea of civilian control of the military in the U.S., but is very poorly executed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I can say so myself, because our entire society was built on 
um, warriors being warrior, uh, you know, qualities translating somehow. I mean, you know, our first president was a general and several have been military leaders, right? We have this kind of like blanket assumption that those things translate. I think that's such, yeah, that's a really present assumption in our culture and possibly because we have this idealization of, you know, the, the war general or the, the war commander. And, um, I think like something that you just said, I think is super important, which is that the matriarchy is not just the patriarchy replaced by women. (laughs) And this, this as like a concept, I think is really lost on a lot of people because we don't partly maybe because we don't have enough interaction with actual matriarchal uh, societies and groups. But the idea that these systems like of oppression and, and of using war as a solution to everything um, would not necessarily be taking shape with leaders whose first priority is to the communities. Yeah, you know, and I I want to own that I'm not indigenous to Turtle Island. You know, my roots are, I'm, I'm biracial for anyone who doesn't know, and I'm Afro-Latino, which means on that side, my roots are Taino and African, um, and then white, a whole mix of European settlers, basically. And um, and so it's interesting often to straddle that, like, that divide even in my body, right? And um, in my experience. Um, and so, you know, I want to I want to be mindful of that, that like I'm still learning. Right. I'm sharing the things as I currently understand them um, and continuing to learn them. And I highly recommend to anyone interested in learning more about this topic, the book, The Militarization of Indian Country um, by Winona LaDuke. I think it's vital if you're trying to understand the relationships between these systems and militarism and the roots of militarism on this land. Um, and I continue to try to grow in my in the detail of my understanding Um, But I also think it's the case for why there is no liberation. There's no anti-militarist movement that's going to get us what we need to do without the leadership of indigenous people who are indigenous to Turtle Island, because they are the only peoples on this land who hold collective communal memory of what things could have been like or were like before militarism was placed on top of this land. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not going to go into it, but separating out militancy from militarism, militarism being a system of organized state power uh, and state violence um, that, you know, um, again, like, how can we understand what it is that we're aspiring to if none of us even have any concept of what that could have been like? We haven't been exposed to that. Um, and so how is it that we think that we can do any successful anti-war, anti-militarist movement without the, following the real leadership of indigenous people and the reason there's many reasons why you know met indigenous leaders and movement leaders are often not in other movement spaces because those spaces are not actually ready to follow that leadership to adjust in their culture in their practices um you know that's that's why that's part of the work is like we have to build our movement to support that kind of transformation and leadership as well and we can't win without doing that yeah Definitely not. I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd want to add that we haven't covered? No, you all have 
you know, graciously let me <laughs> say a lot. So no, it's um. fantastic. Everything you said was aces. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, everything you have said. And I, the, the, there's one little thing. It's not little. There's just one thing that like, while while you're here, I would um, love to know your thoughts on the best ways for for veterans who may or may not be affiliated with any group to show up um, in solidarity with uh, with this ongoing movement for racial justice in um, policing and in our community specifically. Yep, absolutely. So a couple things. One is that um, we've been collaborating with uh, Vets for the People, which is a new uh, veteran organizing project within the Working Families Party focused on uh, the electoral organizing piece. And, you know, we really believe in it at About Face when I say we, like we really believe in uh, the power of an inside-outside strategy and, you know, really believe in that project for that reason. And so we collaborated with them on like a Vets for Black Lives uh, video and some resources and Vets for the People and particularly uh, put out an action guide for veterans for Vets for Black Lives with some basic guidance about like, definitely do this, definitely do not do this, you know, and just some real practical, like, you know, we know most people want to show up well and just need the tools to know how to do that, especially when you're brand new. Um, About Face is going to host a training on on this, like expanding on it um, within the next few weeks as well. So that's, you know, keep an eye out for that. Follow us on social media. That's usually where we promote publicly available opportunities, um, some like some correct training, if you will, that can be really helpful. And, you know, I think as general principles, just, you know, don't show up and try to make them make the action or the movement about you and center vets. Do identify yourself as a vet and let her leverage your vet privilege and social capital to amplify the voices and the messages of the organizers of those Black liberation actions. Um, and that distinction of like the relationship with the organizers is really important of like, if you're just showing up, then just show up and learn and look at how you can be supportive and fall in line, frankly, um, and trust, um, you know, trust the analysis of people, of the people at Movement for Black Lives and many other organizations who have very well-developed analysis and vision and strategy, um, and trust it, you know, don't be the guy we're all, I mean, I was guilty of this when I first came into the movement too, of being like, I just got here and let me tell you what your strategy should be because I clearly know better than you who has been struggling with around these issues for, you know, decades in many cases. And I think sometimes our eagerness to be helpful uh, actually comes out in ways that are, that are pretty um, militarized and patriarchal and uh, uh, white supremacist. Um, you know, with those assumptions. And I think, you know, the other thing I would say is like, do start, like show up, do actions, but find an organizing home because um, it's not just about showing up and going home. That's powerful um, in these moments. But if we're going to build momentum for the long term, organization matters, right? We need to be developing each other as leaders. We need to be in study. Um, study looks a lot of different ways, right? We need to be able to be in a space where we're getting constructive feedback so that we can grow and become better because all of us need to grow and become better, you know? And so um, About Face is a home for, uh, you know, post on 11 veterans, Veterans for Peace is a home for, you know, any veteran, um, as well as civilian allies, you know, who want to do that work. Uh, War Resisters League is a civilian organization that has a great 
uh, analysis and practice, um, you know, if you're interested in particularly the anti-militarism uh, struggle. And, you know, I'm sure there's many other great ones out there. Um, but I, I do think, like, that's part of what it looks like to be uh, a good ally and to be in relationship is to be willing to commit to the work for the long run, right? Not just, like, I show up when I'm really mad and then I kind of, like, go back to my life and don't feel like I need to really be working on myself as part of how how am I showing up? How am I building relationships, right? This isn't about, like, this path-oriented, like, thing. It's like, we need to build real relationships. That is building unity. That is building power. That's what building power looks like, right? It's not just like, we won this electoral thing. It's like, that's a tiny part of it. It matters. Well, I'll say it's a big part of it. But that building that fabric of the ability to struggle and grow together is, you know, us uniting the working class across difference, across division, so that we can become able to leverage the power with unity and with alignment that we need to be able to leverage. And that you know, that is not a show up to an action kind of thing. That's, that's organization, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah. I really like the way you can say so many brilliant things all in like one breath. Was that one breath? I know. <laughs> Keep in mind, like, oh, I'm probably going really fast. Um, no, it was great. It's, I'm, I'm absolutely awed. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I completely agree. And thank you for bringing up those, all those points. I definitely have been at fault of coming into a space and making too much noise and being too much of a non-helpful presence. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a learning process. I think we're all, we're all hopefully trying to learn as we go along and there's always more to learn and we don't know a lot more than we do know. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there were like, yeah, there were like three things that are super practical that I realized I meant to start out with. One is like, Um, as we're showing up and like literally how do you be aligned with the right messaging right now so one of the things within about face that we're coaching people and each other around is like we don't use the language of peaceful protester because that language often gets weaponized as a as a mechanism Mm -hmm. to delineate the quote good protesters from the quote bad protesters we know that that is an intentional documented tactic from COINTELPRO Mm -hmm. and all the way we see it happening now of like um, only the types of protests that are not actually disruptive to the power structure are the quote good ones, right? And that doesn't mean they're not valuable, right? Like a protest can be super moving and valuable and work in, in alignment with building power and not be a direct disruption of power, right? But we also need the kinds of protests that are a literal direct disruption of power, right? Strikes, all kinds of different blockades, right? Like all kinds of different things. And like, those are the ones that get positioned as bad, as violent. So just, just saying protesters, right? We just don't even need to, we just don't need to use that qualifier of peaceful versus Mm -hmm. non-peaceful. The second thing is, um, you know, not using the language of like, I'm doing this because of the constitution and my oath, because as much as that feels viscerally true for us and in some ways, that's a powerful statement to make. It also brushes over the complicatedness of the fact that the Constitution was built, you know, in a way that, like, like there are many constitutional things that are oppressive, right? Like, most, like, the wars that we're doing, you could argue, are con- are technically constitutional under the ways that the court haven't have interpreted the courts have interpreted the Constitution right now, and so, like, 
you know, it, as long as the, the, the idea that as long as the thing is like constitutional and that we only um, are standing up for something based on the authority of the Constitution has its own complications. And so we encourage people to just say, even if you want to speak to like your military commitment, to speak from the place of like, I signed up because I believed in these values that I was told I was fighting for, and I'm here to fight for those values now, right? And just leave the whole loaded language that's alienating to many indigenous communities, right, et cetera, out of the framing. It's just not necessary, again, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, those are the two that are top of my head, and I think that's plenty. So, um, so <laughs> a couple quick tips. Awesome. Where can people find you? Our website is aboutfaceveterans.org, all spelled normally. And our social media is all Vets About Face. So uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, probably soon to be TikTok. Um, I think we technically already have a TikTok. We just haven't done content yet, but we're very excited to. <laughs> I hope you'll be featured on it regularly. I, I am excited to, yes, to explore, especially some like satirical pieces yeah. about officers and recruiters and, you know, all of those fun things that we can poke some fun at in a way that hopefully is illuminating. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the work you're doing with this. It's really important work. And um, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have you on again. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a lot of information that Brittany DeBarros is holding in her head. That's one thing I learned. Yeah, I really thought like I got a lot of great insight from everything she had to say. I really liked that she talked about empire privilege. Like I said in the interview, I had been trying at one point to make people use the phrase imperial privilege. I'm not trying to take credit for inventing that or anything, but I was happy to hear somebody else actually say something similar because I feel like in the conversations about privilege, one of the things that just gets thrown to the wayside is that bigger container, the fact that we are living within an empire and that the social justice movements within this country are definitely connected to the liberation of people globally, which is connected to the anti-militarization and anti-imperialism work being done around the U.S. military expansion around the globe. That's kind of been the theme of every guest that we've had, is that we can connect the work that they're doing individually within their pocket of resistance with all of the other pieces in, in all the other pockets. Yeah, and it's such a blind spot. I mean, not to not to get us too off track from Brittany's conversation, but I've still just been in this rage cloud all day that like people let Colin Powell get up there at the Democratic National Convention and say we're going to restore the White House to a place of honesty. And it's like, you're Colin fucking Powell. You're on the list of people that should be in jail for war crimes. Like, you mm-hmm. lied. <laughs> you lied in front of the UN. You lied to the American public. And you have the audacity to talk about honesty. But the fact that people let that slide because, you know, their brains are so wrapped around Trump and Trump only, I just think is so dangerous. And just, to me, mm-hmm. just points to this awful slippage. And again, that imperial privilege that allows you to overlook war crimes completely 
when it's mm-hmm. not convenient for you because it doesn't affect you. You aren't the one who's waking up to bombs every day. And the people being bombed, they don't give a shit who's dropping those bombs. They aren't like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm really glad that it's a Democrat in office, lesser of two evils. It's all evil to them. Exactly. And that's, I think, to me, one of the one of the biggest difficulties I've had in doing anti-war work is not in communicating with the people who are pro-war. I actually can communicate with them really well uh, for the most part because I've been part of that machine and I can at least understand how to connect to like shared experiences that we've had within it, you know? I know the military very well. We're, we're very well acquainted, and I can talk about it all day long. And uh, and so, you know, there I can find that connection. But where I can't find a connection is with people who have that selective memory loss and think that it's totally fine that Michelle Obama calls George W. Bush her friend and sees nothing wrong with that and sees no conclusion of oh they're all in this together they not we and um you know maybe they all didn't start out this way but power corrupts and once you're corrupted you need to surround yourself with other corrupt people who will reassure you that you're not that corrupt you're fine you're okay you 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 did the best thing that you could do and that's why Colin Powell is speaking, you know, because he's validating all of them. He's not speaking for us. No, it's amazing to see anyone get inspired by anything that happened at that convention. You know, I just think it's just sad <laughs> that anyone would look at that and think it was something to celebrate and not something to be like, wow, this is the best we can do. Okay, we'll make the choices we have to make in November, but this we deserve better. Like, this should not be our baseline. Right. And that, I think, goes back to... It speaks speaks really clearly to what Brittany was saying about, you know, the way that our Constitution was even framed and the way that our Republic was formed. It was maybe idealized to be better before it got codified. But by the time it was written down, it was essentially the same... Uh, the same kind of problematic structure with different names, different verbiage and labels. Yeah, and I thought she did a good job of talking about that paradox of, you know, her experience watching Hamilton where she could sort of hold these two truths about it at once, that there is those ideals and those ideas that are very powerful and that we should still keep striving for, at least in my opinion, even if the people that created them were imperfect and even if they weren't the only people with those ideas and we need to give credit to more people and not just the people we tend to look at as, you know, the quote-unquote founding fathers. But I also think that it's really important to kind of live in that space of paradox where you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and you can you can know that it's like this and that, not this or that. Like You don't necessarily have right. to choose between throwing everything out. You can take the things that work and you can make it inclusive and actually work for more people. You don't have to sit there Mm -hmm. and be like, well, now we have to just do it this way. Because then when you do that, that's how you get the same oppression just recycling itself. And maybe you get more like women at the top of the machine or people of color. But that doesn't make the oppression machine different. It just makes it the same machine with 
you know, a rainbow flag on the bumper. Yeah, it it does. It makes it so that it's, you know, a nicer looking oppressive system. About holding multiple truths, I would say that is one of the most instrumental pieces and skills that I've found uh, sort of necessary to build in myself as far as approaching all of these super complex issues, complex politically and emotionally and psychologically and all these things. Like when we're trying to like analyze people and whether they are good or bad, um, I think it's totally important to be able to accept that some people are both good and bad. Um, because if we can't do that, then we can't weigh the good against the bad. And we can't isolate the bad things or the harmful things, I should say. Harmful and helpful, let's say, instead of good and bad. I don't really like the sort of, you know, that, that kind of nebulous wording. But yeah, if we can't hold multiple truths, then we're restricting ourselves to like a very black and white reality that isn't in line with even our actual experiences. And we end up just bullshitting ourselves to convince ourselves that we are in a black and white reality instead of like a a reality that spans an entire spectrum of every shade of gray. Or a blue and red reality. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's so important. It's like like when we're talking about these elections and talking about the ways that both Democratic and Republican presidents have been uh, part of the war machine and the oppression machine, you know, we also are talking about the real work that gets shit done, usually happening, um, you know, outside of elections, outside of electoral politics and happening throughout, like never stopping. You know, we did, I guess we didn't really talk with Brittany about hope, but I feel like for me, (laughs) I feel like for me, something that gives me hope is knowing that revolutions don't happen Uh, in electoral politics and systemic change doesn't get voted in on this huge national level. It only comes from a pressure from down below, which always makes me, again, think of like the like, well, do we actually need them? Like that's (laughs) the thing that I think they don't want anyone to ask. And that's why they want you to think the solution is swapping out one team for another and the solution isn't maybe questioning if you need those teams at all could it be now would it be later sergeant major what is your word will i be favored will i be heard will i be heard sergeant major word tell me what's the word tell them save that bullshit for the birds they may not concur show me all the things that i
Thank you so much for listening to What the Folk. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or telling all your friends about us or however you choose to get the message out. We will completely appreciate it. Hope you can join us next time. Till then, take care of yourselves and each other.